0: The annual FINRA Priorities Letter is a great resource for firms looking to improve their compliance, supervisory, and risk management programs. But the 2019 letter is a little different. This year's letter focuses on materially new areas so that readers can better identify areas for program improvements. On today's episode, we learn more about the changes to the letter and drill into five key topics. Welcome to FINRA Unscripted from New York. I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. I'm joined today by a trio of individuals, two FINRA Unscripted veterans, and one new voice for us. For this episode, we have Barry Havlick, Executive Vice President of FINRA's member supervision team, Steve Polanski, a Senior Director in member supervision, and Jean DeMeo, Senior Vice President of Options Regulation and the Trading and Financial Compliance Program. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This group is here to discuss FINRA's recently released 2019 annual priorities letter. Each year, FINRA publishes this letter to highlight issues of importance to FINRA's regulatory programs. But this year's letter is a little bit different. Barry, what changed? Well, one of the first things readers will notice is that we changed the name
1: of the letter for the first time since 2006. It's now called the Risk Monitoring and Examinations Priority Letter, and That's really to reflect the fact that not only do we conduct examinations, but we do a lot of ongoing risk monitoring. So it's reflecting both of those major components of the work that we do. The second thing that's changed is we made the letter a little bit shorter. And it's shorter because we focused on the areas that are truly new priorities for us. Uh, I've received a fair amount of feedback and I know in my prior role, I would occasionally think, wow, yeah, that's obvious. We know is always gonna focus on suitability issues. We know is always gonna focus on supervision, variable annuities, complex products, things like that. So I've heard a lot of members give us feedback that they'd really like the letter to just focus on what's new. So that's what we've done. And while we're focusing on what's new, I would emphasize that firms still focus on those priorities like those that I just mentioned. So we list those in the beginning of the report. Doesn't mean they're any less important. It just means we're always going to be focused on those areas.
2: One thing, if I could add, is when we talk about new, you can sort of think of new along two different dimensions. One is an entirely new topic And the second is really a topic that we've addressed before, but where we're bringing in a new angle to it. So, for example, on AML, we talk about the CDD rule that became effective earlier this year. So there are those sort of two aspects of what's new.
0: Steve, while you have the floor, it's a big change, but it's also not the first time that we've changed the structure of this letter. How else has it evolved over time?
2: One of the changes we made in the past was to structure the letter around different risk groupings. Prior to that, the letter looked a little bit like a compilation of each FINRA department, so you could pretty clearly say which issue was from which department, but that resulted in overlap when, for instance, MarketReg and Moore were looking at something that was typically sort of an operational risk. And then the same topic would appear in two places in the letter, and it didn't really make a lot of sense. So we tried to restructure the letter around risk groupings.
0: Does that still hold true with the new layout?
2: It does, yes.
0: So for this episode of Fin Scripted, we were going to delve into just a few of the topics in this year's letter. We don't have time for them all, so you'll have to read the full thing for that. one of the things that's new in this letter is fixed income markup disclosure. This one has a clear reason for being added to the list of priorities due to some new rules that went into effect last May. But let's get a quick overview. What will we be looking for when it comes to markup or markdown disclosure obligations, Steve?
2: Well, at a high level, we're going to be obviously looking for firms' compliance with the rule. And That really goes to the types of information that firms need to disclose on their confirmations. So that information includes the markup or markdown for principal trades with retail customers that a firm offsets on the same day with other principal trades in the same security. The disclosed markups and markdowns must be expressed as both a total dollar amount of the transaction and a percentage of prevailing market price, or PMP. In addition, for all retail customer trades and corporate agency and municipal debt securities, firms must disclose on the confirmation the time of execution and a security-specific link to the FINRA or MSRB website where additional information about the transaction is available. Just in terms of what we've seen in the examination findings report, we discussed some of the challenges firms have faced in complying with the rules. And some of the things we've seen are traders not entering all the required information, such as the PMP, into the firm's order entry systems. And that results in the firms not calculating the markup or markdown properly. Sometimes the firms have adjusted the PMP in ways that are not consistent with the rule. and In some cases, firms did not provide disclosures to certain customers because the firm identified those accounts as institutional, even though they did not meet the definition of institutional customers.
0: And is there any way for firms to evaluate their own compliance before a FINRA exam team comes in?
2: Yes, there are. FINRA has provided some FAQs that can be a good starting point for firms to look at. They should review the rule and their WSPs and make sure their WSPs are capturing all the nuances of the rule that are relevant to their business. A reasonable process then also would be for firms to look at the actual disclosures that they make and check them to see if those confirmations themselves comply with the various obligations of the rule depending on the type of security the customers to whom the disclosure is made.
1: I would add that in addition to the WSPs, to Steve's point, it's really looking at the controls they have in place to make sure the WSPs are actually effective. So I would encourage firms to double check both.
0: Another topic in the letter this year is a popular one, and that's digital assets. So, last year's letter had a section on initial coin offerings and cryptocurrencies. This year, that's evolved to supervision of business around digital assets. Barry, maybe you can take this one. How much interest is FINRA seeing among firms in participating in activities around digital assets? I think it's a mix. We see some
1: firms that are very focused on it. Other firms are just barely dipping their toe in the water. They're being cautious and trying to figure out what others are doing in that space. So it is a little bit of a mixed bag. What I would encourage firms to do if they do want to get into the space, whether it's their primary business or it's in addition to their current business, and that is to really understand how they're going to apply the current rules and regulations to these new activities and be able to show how they comply with these existing requirements.
0: So the letter phrases it as a uh, supervision of digital assets business, but how can a firm determine if it's just a digital asset or a digital security?
2: What FINRA will look for as it assesses firms' handling of digital assets, is, among other things, their process to determine whether a digital asset is, in fact, a security. Because that's really when the rules and obligations that apply to FINRA members kick in. The SEC has discussed factors that firms may wish to consider in determining whether a digital asset is a security in, among other things, its 21A report on the DAO, or DAO, the Distributed Autonomous Organization, and firms may wish to look at that.
0: Great. So we'll include a link to that in our show notes. So what will FINRA be looking at for firms who are participating in this market?
1: We'll be looking at reasonable basis and customer-specific suitability, how they apply due diligence, they're doing their due diligence on a security, AML, supervision, fair pricing and best execution, communications with the public, any outside business activities that might be related, and then very important, custody and clearing. So it sounds like they need to keep in mind that all FINRA rules still apply. (laughs) All FINRA rules still apply and being creative about figuring out how to apply these rules to a very new marketplace and types of securities. So Jean
0: wanted to move over to you as our market reg expert. On the market reg side of things, we've got in the letter short tenders specifically that FINRA will be reviewing how firms account for their options positions while tendering shares pursuant to Exchange Act Rule 14E4. What's the issue here and what is market reg looking for?
3: So you mentioned, Caitlin, that the issue is in the options context. The problem that we're seeing is that at times, firms are not offsetting their long position against their short calls that are in the money, and thus they are tendering too large a position. So they have to look at a net long position that includes the deduction for call options.
0: This is a topic that was new to the letter last year, but we're including it again in 2019. Why is that?
3: So- While we've seen an improvement in terms of compliance in this area, we still do have issues with certain firms, firms that maybe just were not fully aware of the requirements of the rule and how they apply to options. We've brought many enforcement actions and there's been disgorgement of a large amount of money as well. So it seems like it's ripe for another discussion this year as well.
0: So how would a firm make sure that they understand this rule and that they're applying it appropriately for
3: options? The first step would be to go back and take a look at the rule itself. There is some guidance that historically has been put out by the SEC and others in this context. And the other thing that firms can do is contact us directly. We've been out there doing a lot of outreach to firms in this area, and we certainly always will sit down with the firm on a one-off basis and have a conversation about this or any other rule that they have questions about.
0: Great. And now they know your voice, so they know how to track you down. That's right. So moving back over to Barry and Steve, another topic in the letter is suitability. Again, this is one that, Barry, you mentioned is always a priority. But this year in the priority letter, it lists three new areas of focus. What are they? The first is
1: quantitative suitability determinations and that's really making sure that firms have ways and compliance tools designed to detect and look for excessive trading, excessive commissions, trading losses and the like. The second is over concentration in illiquid securities And then the third is around recommendations to purchase share classes that are not in line with the customer's investment time horizon or their objectives. So we know that more and more complex and different types of products have been offered, leveraged ETFs and the like. And... A lot of products have different holding periods now in a way that we didn't see maybe 10 years ago. And so it's incumbent upon firms to make sure that their system of supervision is looking at supervising whether the recommendations and the holding periods align with the intention of that particular security. And I will emphasize once again that while these are maybe three new aspects of suitability that we're focusing on, I encourage firms to look at suitability broadly and not to focus solely in on these three issues, but to look very broadly about making sure they've got the right controls in place to supervise that the recommendations that the reps are making are suitable for the client in their circumstances.
0: Tying into what you just mentioned about suitable for the client, another specific type of client that's always in focus and again mentioned in this letter is senior investors but this is also an evolving area. So it seems like this year's letter focuses on two new priorities, supervision and also firm controls. So first for supervision, since we were just on that topic, what does FINRA expect to see when a registered rep serves in a fiduciary capacity, including those who hold a power of attorney or those acting as trustee or co-trustee?
1: Where a firm might allow that, we would look to see that the firm's requiring the reps to provide prior notification and receive firm approval for such an arrangement, and then how the firm's going to monitor the reps' activities once they're serving in that role to make sure that the rep is acting in the best interests of the client. You know, there are some firms who will address this risk, and it is a risk, by prohibiting reps from serving in that capacity. But it is, again, similar to suitability. Firms should be focusing broadly on their system of supervision, their supervisory controls to make sure they understand what their reps are doing and that they're complying with the applicable rules and regulations and firms' policies and procedures.
0: So the second item on the letter was firm controls, and that's related to a new rule 2165 regarding the financial exploitation of seniors and then also amendments to rule 4512 regarding trusted contacts. Those became effective last February. What will FINRA be looking at when it comes to these firm controls and obligations under the new rule and amendments? Steve, do you want to take this?
2: It's important that firms understand that Rule 2165 is a permissive rule. It allows them but does not obligate them to place a temporary hold on disbursement of funds or securities from a specified adult's account. If a firm does place such a hold on the dispersal of funds, then the firm needs to have in place written supervisory procedures so that this is done in an appropriate and consistent fashion. And so, FINRA would be reviewing the firm's WSPs in that regard. With respect to make a reasonable effort to obtain a trusted contact, FINRA will be looking at the processes that firms use to try and obtain this information. Again, there's not an obligation to obtain the information, but there's an obligation to try and obtain the information.
0: To wrap up, I wanted to move over to a couple more market reg topics with Jean. So one thing on the letter this year is market manipulation, which by nature of FINRA's mission to ensure market integrity is, again, always a priority. But it is an evolving area. Technology is a big part of that. So Gene, what's new in 2019?
3: Sure. So there are a couple of areas that are new for 2019. And the primary areas that are new are focused on, first off, cross product reviews. So in the past, we've looked at equities. We've looked at options in a vacuum. For the coming year, we're looking to combine more of the reviews that are done across options and equities to look for patterns of potential manipulation. Another area within technology that we are expanding the scope of our reviews is with respect to machine learning techniques. So we've taken our traditional patterns, we're looking to re-engineer them. Some of them we've already re-engineered to incorporate some of the more sophisticated tools that are available with machine learning.
0: And so along the same lines, what tools is FINRA going to be providing in 2019 to help firms identify some manipulative activities?
3: So once again, we'll be providing report cards that look at the type of activity that we're concerned with. And we also, as I mentioned earlier, do significant outreach and will continue to do so. For example, we have product-based conferences that we run at FINRA, and an example of which is our options conference, where we meet several times a year with all of the firms across the options industry to provide guidance and to provide information regarding the areas of priority that we have. I also would like to mention, in the context of market manipulation, an area that we've been really developing and we mentioned in the letter is we're looking at correlated products. So in the context of correlated products, what we're doing is looking at very direct correlations. So, for example, how an index product might relate to an ETF product. In my world, that would happen in the options space. We're also doing that type of review for ETPs as well. I'd emphasize that what we're looking at are very direct correlations We're not looking at indirect correlations. And by that, what I mean is that we're looking at, for instance, activity across an index and an ETF that are related, but we're not looking at more indirect correlations, for instance, two securities that just happen to trade in the same sector.
0: So another item here in the letter is best execution or best X. This remains in the report because it remains a problem. The 2018 exam findings report notes some firms did not comply with the FINRA rule because they relied upon a deficient Regular and rigorous review of customer order execution quality. Gene, what concerns do you have with respect to best execution?
3: So you hit it right on the head. The concern is deficiencies within the regular and rigorous review that a firm might conduct, including situations where there are price improvement opportunities for a customer that aren't necessarily being pursued. Our concern is primarily that a firm might be pursuing order routing inducements, and the focus really needs to be on the execution that the customer is receiving. So if the customer's expectations and the customer's order is not the primary focus, that's something that we will be taking a look at and we have looked at in the past as well. For firms that are looking to determine what their specific regular and rigorous obligations are, there is much in the way of guidance that's out there that's been provided to give firms sort of a roadmap as to what to look at in the context of regular and rigorous reviews. For example, FINRA Rule 5310 provides a list of factors that should be considered in determining whether or not you've met your regular and rigorous obligations. And we also put out some extensive guidance in 2015. Circular 15-46 also provides much in the way of information regarding regular and rigorous, and best execution obligations in general.
0: And it seems like fulfilling your best X requirements might vary based on order type. When should a firm consider a review by order
3: Sure. An order-by-order review is something that should be considered when there's large orders that are at issue. So if a firm is routing or internally executing a large-size order, regular and rigorous may not be enough. And the reason for that is that these executions usually require more judgment in terms of market timing and capital commitments as well.
0: So just to wrap things up, Barry, I wanted to ask, how do you hope firms are going to use this document? I hope they're going to use this document to reassess the systems
1: of supervision and controls that they have in place. I think it's a good tool, along with the exam findings report, to just revisit those areas of your firm's activities, how you're supervising, how you're controlling. And all of
0: that will help you be better prepared for the next FINRA exam. So that was just a few areas, many more in the priorities letter for 2019. So we encourage listeners to check out the full letter for the rest. But that's all we have time for. Barry, Jean, Steve, thanks for joining me. From New York, I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. If you have any questions for future guests or ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at FINRA unscripted at FINRA.org. Until next time. note, FINRA podcasts are the sole property of FINRA, and the information provided is for informational and educational purposes only. The content of the podcast does not constitute any FINRA rule or amendment or interpretation of such rules. Compliance with any recommended conduct presented does not mean that a firm or person has complied with the full extent of their obligations under FINRA rules, the rules of any other SRO or securities laws. This podcast is provided as is. FINRA and its affiliates are not responsible for any human or mechanical errors or omissions. Parties may not reproduce these podcasts in any form or reference them in any publication without the express written consent of FINRA.